Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Cullop. Episode 116. As remembered by Alfred Hubey, there were many memorable moments of the 1958-1959 season of the Metropolitan Opera, including the debuts of five tenors, Dimitar Uzanov, Flaviano Labo, Primo Zambruno, Carl Liebel, and Barry Morel, Otello with Dimitar Uzanov and Zinka Milanov, the first met Iago of Tito Gobbi, the debuts of Karl Dunsch as Beckmesser and Eze Nordmo Lovberg as Sieglinde, the Lohengrin of Brian Sullivan, a classic cancellation replacement story, and a disastrous Verdi Requiem. Part 3 of 3. It's funny, Leonie and, and Nielsen, Bing would always say he'd given to them. They always wanted to, even if they were great in... Leone, especially Siglinda, sent uh, that repertoire. Deep inside, she wanted to be Amelia and Balo, Tosca, Aida. So he did give in occasionally, but this first season, she did the Lady Macbeths, there was a debut, and then she did uh, an Aida at the end of February. I, I remember the last Macbeth was like the middle of February, and about 10 days later, she did her first Aida, and it was completely different. I mean, uh, she had the top for an all, but idiomatically, it was nothing like the, even though Lady Macbeth was a t- uh, Verdi, it was nothing like Lady Macbeth or later on her other repertoire. Matter of fact, he wanted an ugly voice. Actually, this is the year that Dmitry Uzanov made his debut, not, not popular with the public, and I think that's the year that Milanov did a Desdemona with Uzanov.
And uh, the new production of Cavalry was haunted by cast changes. It was a little cheddar, little by stature, but a very big voice. Flaviano Labo, who I liked very much, I got to know as a person too. And he was only about five foot two. And when he opened his mouth and fought, so you couldn't hear the orchestra. It was such a beautiful, big voice. <laughs> But apparently, I didn't realize this for years, that when Bing mounted a new production, that Quintero uh, was hired to do a new cabin pack, even though the other one was only about five years old, to junk that, uh, Lava was hired for Turidu. And he came and said that was not the role he wanted. He didn't think he would work out as Turidu. And they found a tenor that I haven't thought about for years, Primo Zamburo. I don't know where they found him from. Nobody knows. Horrendous, horrendous to do the first two redo. He did the first two, and uh, he was really second-rate, really second-rate. And again, it, it was jinxed in a way. The Cavan Pags, the productions, those first two productions, the second was only a little improvement over the first, except that in the first production, on Easter Sunday, this was the one in 51, on Easter Sunday, uh, people were putting the laundry out, there were people, the barbershop was open, all and people, the Italian and the audience were incensed. They all went to church, and nobody came out. <laughs> nobody ever came out of church. And, you know, I don't know why, he had, he had just Santuzza and uh, Turidu, but nobody else came out. What happened to them? But anyhow, th- this was a, a 
that that's a funny opera. Even the Zeffirelli production, Met has not been very uh, lucky with the productions, but the Prima Zambru was really something. Beside the scramble for conductors, which actually really made the season really weird, because you had Martin Rich, you had Strasbourg, you had you had all the assistant conductors uh, conducting the repertoire that that they would never had a chance to do because of Metropolis. And then this was Tito Gobi's first Iago this year. And that was, I mean, his Iago was really definitive. It was different than George London, but Gobi's whole career was a different career than George London's in the repertoire that he did. Same thing happened in Hoffman. Geta and London were so wonderful in their respective roles, especially London in the four roles. He was sensational. And after about two or three performances, all of a sudden, London is out of it, and Marshal Sanger is doing all the roles. And Marshal Sanger, who was my favorite, I heard his debut in 1943. By that time, the voice was drying out, and he didn't sing much after that. So Bing didn't keep the cast together. One advantage whatever it is today in the last 10 years or so, is they have ensemble casting. Once the cast is together, they pretty much stay together at the Met. And then there was a wonderful uh, Norwegian soprano that came with great promise, Asa Nordmo Loveberg. She did a wonderful Siglinda.
was in the Flockstad mode because it had that little bit of the same quality and it was sizable, but there was not that extra dimension that Flockstad had, which was very special, was missing, but it was a very good Siglinda and, and she was also a very good Ava, but she sort of disappeared. She came and she went. And of course, the other artist that was so great, the best Beckmesser I've ever seen is a wonderful German artist called Karl Dernsch. And he was also uh, the doctor in Wozzeck, very uh, chilling, chilling doctor in Wozzeck. What is this now, Wozzeck? Very so bad. Eh, eh, eh? What's a, what doctor? I show you now, Wozzeck. I show you just now coffee. It is three to get coffee. How shall I get talk? You do not get paid every day for just coffee. Wozzeck! Man's will is free, in man individuality supplemented into freedom. Eh? What's this coffee? Have you already eaten your beans up? What's it? Beans in plenty, not but beans for dinner. And then some years later, he became the witch and Hansel and Gretel, <laughs> which, which is very traditional. But he was a, a big addition. And then an, another German tenor that I got to know pretty well that actually sang a lot in Europe and in Bayreuth, Karl Liebel. I had only heard him in a broadcast in those days. Somebody would tape him and we'd pirate real, real tape. And he had sung Parsifal from Covent Garden and Bing hired him. And I got to know him. Carl Liebel was a very good artist with a, a nice range, a lyric Wagnerian, a real lyric Wagnerian. He got through Tristan. He got through his repertoire very well. Herod. And Lohengrin, too. Uh, Herod later on. But... It was a light voice that probably sounded a lot better in Covent Garden and, and some of the smaller houses. But he never had any problems in, in projecting and in, in being heard. And, uh, and he wasn't a, a juvenile. He was, by that time, uh, he was in his uh, maybe late 40s, early 50s. But, you know, he, it still was a good addition to roster. Oh, 
Barry Morell, real old-fashioned American tenor. He was a pupil of a wonderful baritone who had a studio at the Met Studios, and he was named as Giuseppe Daniza. And Giuseppe Daniza was great baritone of the 20s, and he eventually married Bidu Sayal. They lived together for years, but he eventually married. But he was a great teacher. Barry was the son of a garment manufacturer who had a big company right a block away from the, from the old men. But Barry wanted to be a singer. He didn't want to go in the business. And he didn't have a big voice, but he worked so hard with Denisa, who gave him the enough of the voice to sing so much repertoire. He made his debut in Butterfly. He was the kind of artist, singer, tenor you, you want to have at the Met because he could step in for Corelli. He could step in for Bugunzi. But he was always stepping in. That was the problem. But Barry was a good butterfly. He did a very good broadcast of where he didn't step in, of Bala and Mascara, some years later. Che nel ballo al mio vita tenderà spavetto, ma se m'arresto ch'io pavento di van. Non vo, nessuno pur se tolarlo de, tu va. quite a few years, and even Adriana. There was repertoire, and, and Turidu, he sang everything the same way, but he had in Tosca. It was a, a little bit like another American tenor, John Alexander, where they had the range of voice. It was so well-placed that they could actually sing heavier roles than they should be singing and not injure their voice. No, Barry Morell, he again got like, the same with John Alexander, they accept covers where they come in and replace an artist that's scheduled. And the audience thinks of them as, as covers. But I remember it was on a Sunday night. It was a year or two later in the old house. There was a special performance of Tosca, non-subscription, which meant all seats were available to the public. And those days, you couldn't get tickets for much because the Met was running 97 98%. And the cast was Gobi Scarpia, Tobaldi Tosca, and Barry Morell, Cavradossi. And uh, I invited some friends to sit in the box, and Bing called me in the late afternoon, because standing room went on sale about that time, and he said very dismally, he sounded very somber, and he said, Hubei, we 
have a problem tonight. We have a change of cast. Well, everybody was, you know, looking for, I mean, forgetting about Barry Morell, Tobaldi, and Gobbi. And he said, uh, Barry Morell is indisposed. And I said, well, who's going to sing? He said, well, I've just called him and he agreed to do it. It's Corelli. So, of course, I was, to myself, I said, what a big change. And he said, this is a special performance. Everybody bought tickets for the cast. And I said, Mr. Bing, maybe you should do it yourself to go out there. And everybody expected, when he came out in front of the curtain, everybody expected either Gobi or Tibaldi. And he announced uh, very uh, as though Barry Miller were a star, you know, which is very good. then right after that in the new house open even at the broadcast of Jocondo where Corelli and Tobaldi opened the Jocondo run and the broadcast came and Corelli didn't want to sing it there was a problem between Tobaldi and Corelli at that time and Barry Murrow got the broadcast of it Retired, went up to bought a place up in Vermont to, and spent his time chopping wood. 
And this year also, there was a very good Lohengrin. Bing kept on giving shippers more repertoire. He started conducting lighter operas like Pasquale, a wonderful Boheme, which was technically, I thought, his debut, but that's the one that put him on the map. But then, all of a sudden, this year, he ends up conducting, well, Vanessa was an, uh, perfect for him, but this year ends up conducting uh, Lohengrin, which could have been a stretch because his background didn't include any of this repertoire. But he ended up with a very good cast. He had Della Casa, who's the Elsa, and Sullivan, a young tenor that I have always thought had great, great potential. And the Met treated him with that potential because they gave him the repertoire as he developed. And something happened where he never really developed the right way, but his Lohengrin was wonderful. And then he did Dimitri before that in the English chorus with George London. Uh, he even sang when the year that they did the Bohem in English and Italian, he and Nadine Connor. In a wonderful voice, he always had some problem in placing the top right, but it didn't bother you because the rest of the voice was really glorious. And then there was a famous Verdi Requiem fiasco. Bruno Volta, and I, I remember this, I'll tell you the whole story actually, very short. There were two Verdi Requiems around Easter that year. This was Bruno Volta's farewell. Of course, Bruno Volta was not conducting that much, but in Bing's era, did at least one opera a year. He retired after that and they never left California. He was pretty, pretty old. And they decided to do two performances, the second one being a special one on a Sunday night. The first one, I'm not sure if it was a subscription or not, was supposed to be Milanoff. 
doing the convent scene from Forza, and then the Verdi Requiem, Milanov and uh, Elias and uh, Bogunzi and uh, Totsi. The first performance, Milanov canceled, and they put in, there was a young soprano called Heidi Kroll, and she was the cover, and particularly anything like Milanov, but just a, a nice voice, period. And she did that first performance. Sunday night, place was packed. Milanov sings the conference scene in a usual way. I mean, there was no way you thought she was indisposed. singing and watching her I'm sitting there watching and all of a sudden she starts to turn around in a fake kind of a weaving around and she looks down to the ground and she sort of crumples 
She was fainting because she was coming into a part that she couldn't sing. It was after Dies Irae, uh, the next part, the, the Liberame, it's her big scene. They pull the curtain down, so I rushed back with Francis Robinson, a wonderful man, assistant general manager, rushed back to the stage, and she's on the ground, and I said in a loud voice, are there a couple of hefty stagehands that could help her to dress room? She heard that, and she started to kind of show sign of life so I had them pick her up and take her to her dressing room she lie on this little chaise lounge and Francis and I were with her alone and the house doctor was going to come and Francis said I wonder what we could get for her and we heard her in this sort of guttural voice say brandy so it was a Sunday mind you we are both in black tie we ran across the stage door where the dressing room was to Bill's bar which was open and Francis ran, and of course they knew him right away. They knew me too. I was uh, not as much as Francis. And he asked for a triple brandy, and the bartender poured the triple brandy. And then he and I both run out, and of course it's against the law to leave a bar with an open drink like that, especially in those days. So the bartender jumps over the bar and knows Francis. And as we are running across the street with a triple brandy into the stage door, it's Francis and I and the bartender behind us. So we got to Milan's dressing room, and the bartender was upset because the law was broken or something. But it was, it was a fiasco. Then, then she had her eyes pretty much wide open. And Heidi Crawl actually, was she backstage? Because Milanov had alerted that she had canceled the first performance but she was near enough so that she could step in. She finished the performance. But it was a fiasco. And I, to this day, I think that Milanov didn't know what to do. She was there, wide open, just saying to herself, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. So she, she had a purse. Yeah, she was holding a purse, yeah. It was the fakest faint I ever saw in my life. That season, on April 2nd, there was a kind of a mixed bag gala it opened with the third act of Bohem with Lucina Mara, Richard Tucker, with Strasvogel conducting. They had the second act of Tosca with Licha Albanezer, Fernandi in London, with Kurt Herbert Adler conducting. It was sort of, you know, that is not a gala. And they had uh, the ballet program, ballet gala, and they called it Hail and Farewell. Why Hail and Farewell? I have no idea. And they did it one night as a benefit, and they repeated it for that gala. And they had the third act of Aida with Riesenek, Bergunzi, and Merrill. And that was Claver conducting. Also, his illness started. He also had to cancel part of a performance. So between Metropolis' heart attack and Claver starting his decline, um, Bing was in big trouble. This was really a strange gala with a Bohem act, a Tosca act, a whole ballet act, and then ending up with the Aida, but that was what you call a real mixed bag. I don't know why. It was all these new ballets. They were short. One was a ballet by Tudor, one was by Danilova, one was uh, Henry Butler, who was a very good choreographer, and Herbert Ross. 
The dancers, beside the core, which was terrible, they had hired Nora Kay, Bambi Lynn. She did the ballet and carousel in the 40s. But I didn't think of her. She was a name, but she wasn't with any company. And she was one of the dancers in one of the ballets. And Lupi Serrano, who was one of the leading dancers of the of the ballet theater. It was a strange gala. They were trying to, to make ballet a part of the repertoire. Later on, there was some thought of having a resident ballet company spelling the opera company like Covent Garden so they would have they would have a rest between operas where they would do a ballet evening and, and I I was already box office manager at that time it was in the 60s and I said uh, no way I mean unless you built a company like the, the Royal Ballet Sadler's Wells you, you have to build a company you don't just put a company in trial and an experiment Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com. This is your producer, Donald Cullop.